1: We live in a complicated, conflicted world. Russia's unprovoked war in Ukraine, U.S. and European efforts to punish Russian aggression in ways that challenge the basic rules of financial and commercial globalization, China's growing geopolitical and military assertiveness, not the least as measured by increasing threats to repatriate Taiwan. Even Japan and Germany, long advocates of soft power, have announced they will rearm in the face of rising global threats. What about India? Today, it's the world's sixth largest economy and famously, the world's largest democracy. But it aims higher. Prime Minister Modi recently declared that the country must accelerate its growth and development in the coming decades. By 2050, only China and the US are likely to have larger economies. But that might be the easy part. India shares a border of more than 2,000 miles with China and has fought the Chinese repeatedly as recently as 2020. It seems inevitable that India and China will butt heads as both countries become stronger. And to add a twist, Russia, China's declared best friend forever, is India's largest arms supplier. As I said, it's complicated. My guest today, Mohan, is well positioned to help us pick apart some of those complications. He is an Indian academic, journalist, and foreign policy expert a senior fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute in Delhi. This is his beat. Welcome, Raja, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. Thank you for hosting me today. Let's start with the war in Ukraine. India, like most countries in the world, in fact, has not condemned the Russia invasion and is reportedly buying discounted Russian oil and and other things. So no sanctions. Your country's relationship with Russia is long, deep, and positive. Two questions. How is the government thinking about its relationship with Russia, and how should they
2: be thinking about it? For Delhi, I think the problem is of managing the path dependence uh, on Russia, that for almost 60 years uh, we've had a relationship with Russia. But in the last 20, uh, the weight of Russia uh, in India's uh, economic orientation has seen steady decline. Uh, trade with Russia uh, is really today smaller than India's trade with uh, Bangladesh. But Russia has a has a niche in India's uh, uh, you know domestic and external security calculus that as a major supplier of arms to India and as a Supplier of uh, advanced uh, nuclear uh, systems, uh, Russia then has had a, a privileged place, but this is really uh, about the in, about India's past, its past relationships, and I think the Ukraine crisis and the war uh, is, I think, willy-nilly going to persuade India uh, to diversify further away from Russian arms, uh, to find a near-term alternative, because it's not clear if Russia can actually be a reliable supplier. Uh, given the uh, kind of performance of its armed forces uh, in Ukraine and its focus on rearming itself in the coming decades. As it, it doesn't make much sense for India to continue to depend on Russian weapons. But the inventory is still Russian. So, therefore, I think we'll have to find innovative solutions to reduce the dependence on Russia. And here the emphasis of Prime Minister Modi has been on producing more weapons at home and producing more with the help of private Indian capital as well as private Western capital. So I think actually the West has an opportunity here to work with India to reduce further the weight of Russia in India's national security calculus. So I think the crisis uh, helps us look at uh, a ways of overcoming the Russia problem in the India, uh, India's deepening relationship with the U.S. and the West.
1: You've recently written, in effect, that India should call a spade a spade. Russia's invasion violates, you wrote, internationally recognized border and needs to be called out. In effect, you just said that. But that doesn't mean breaking off relations. It doesn't mean um, the kind of Western condemnation, the sort of morality high ground that has been so popular in Europe and in the United States. How do you imagine that balance between principle and practicality being achieved?
2: My sense is uh, India is making it clear. It it, it is not, its silence uh, on this invasion does not mean it is endorsing the the Russian invasion. It it has to manage the weapons dependence on Russia, especially at a time when it is locked in a military standoff with China uh, at at 14,000 plus. Uh, on India's northern northern frontiers, so at this point, uh, the vulnerability to any supply disruption from Russia is serious, uh, and therefore for India, uh, it, it has to navigate this delicately. And my sense is, uh, it's so far so good. Although uh, the there is quite clearly there's a lot of criticism of India in the Western media, uh, I give a lot of credit for the Biden administration to 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 be empathetic to India's concerns to recognize where India is coming from, and to underline uh, the United States' long-term interest in working with India uh, to produce a stable balance of power in in China. To simplify, the Russia problem uh, does not mean the China problem disappears, and India's importance uh, in producing a balance of power framework uh, in Asia. So the administration, contrary to the commentary, has been smart in handling Indian issue, and the Indians are building up further uh, with the United States in the Quad and other frameworks.
1: Let me pull on one thread. The administration, the U.S. administration has been loud about sanctions, but quite careful about enforcing secondary sanctions. So hence, uh, India, Indonesia, lots of countries, China, are importing more energy and I suspect food and other things from Russia than they did before uh, the invasion. Um, If that balance continues from the point of the U.S., that's fine. But how would India react if indeed, uh, as the war drags on, a call for increased enforcement of sanctions gets louder and louder?
2: I would just say at this point, Buying Russian oil is not illegal. I mean, under the American sanctions regime, so so, so far, the West, US, has not put sanctions on purchase of oil uh, from from uh, from Russia. After all, Europe does it uh, on a daily basis. India does it. China does it. But if by December there are a new set of rules on, uh, you know, either it's a price cap or some other mechanism, uh, India will will have to take a fresh look at its policy. Uh, my sense is. India stands to benefit, assuming there is a price cap agreed upon by the Western countries. Right now, it's not clear if Germany actually backs it. Uh, If there is a price cap, uh, it suits India because it will pay even less for the Russian oil, because the US plan is to reduce, not to reduce the flow of oil out of Russia, but to reduce the inflow of foreign exchanges uh, into into Russia. So therefore, if the price cap works, uh, India is not going to complain. Now, if it will be happy to pay a low price uh, for the the Russian oil. And if it doesn't work, and if the West itself is divided on how to deal with Russian invasion, uh, so it is not a problem then uh, for India in the near term. But I think India does understand the scale of the crisis in Europe. And... If you put India's position in relation to where Germany is, where you protect Germany, Americans protect Germany, uh, Americans defend Germany, while Germany's trade and political relationship with Russia has grown, India is not dependent on uh, United States for security. India is not a treaty ally. So I think given that uh, comparison, my sense is uh, the administration uh, is quite understanding of where India stands and working with India uh, to... Further, deep, deep, uh, further deepen the bilateral partnership on a range of issues, including on the oil question, in, uh, including on the energy question, and on the uh, weapons issue. My sense is this will only open up more opportunities for India and the U.S. and the West to work together. The downside of the price cap, of
1: course, is that it's supposed to be executed by politicizing insurance. That is to say, we would extend our current tendency to politicize transactions globally to the insurance business, if the oil is mispriced, no insurance, and hence you can't move it. Does that approach to international trade and commerce from Washington and indeed from the European capitals, uh, we make the rules, and I want to get back to the rules-based order later on, we make the rules to serve our purposes.
2: How is that viewed in, in Delhi? You deal with the world as it is, uh, Alan. I mean, it's not that uh, you can tell the West, look, guys, you're violating your own rules. I think I think there was a time when India used to do that, stand up and speak up on, uh, on moral politic uh, of talking about the right and wrongs in the world. But today, in India has to deal with the realities outside. The weaponization of interdependence has already taken place in a big way. I mean, uh, I won't just blame the U.S., China has done it in terms of how it has manipulated the global uh, trading system to its own advantage. The U.S. is weaponizing its dominance over the financial system uh, to to cope with the, the crisis, in, uh, crisis in Europe. So that's a reality. And I think India will deal with it. Uh, but I don't see India, you know, standing up in like in the old days and saying, look, these are illegal. What's being done is unfair. But the world is unfair. Uh, when has it not been? and it will forever be.
1: Let's switch to China. You recently wrote that, and I quote, China is convinced it now has the power to redeem its historic territorial claims vis-a-vis India and other Asian neighbors. When I read that, I immediately thought of the mantra that you hear from the Chinese all the time, Asia for the Asians, which I really think means Asia for the Chinese in, in their formulation. That said, Western politicians tend to see dominance in Asia to China almost by default
2: in their thinking, at least. Do you? No, in fact, uh, you know, Indians have not in doubt at all that when the Chinese say Asia for Asians, so they actually mean uh, accept, you know, telling everyone to accept uh, Chinese hegemony over Asia. In fact, our foreign minister, Dr. Jaishankar, Shankar, has said the idea of a idea that the Chinese slogan, Asia for Asians, is really a self-serving one. So there was a time when Indians used to believe in this argument. After all, India was one of the, the conveners of the idea of Asians, uh, of the Asian Relations Conference going back to 1947. Uh, India long believed in Asian solidarity. But thanks to the Chinese and what they've done in the region, today India is much wiser. I, I, I don't think it just taken in by Chinese rhetoric and Chinese uh, terms of Chinese discourse. And I think one of the problems with the West has been they've tended to debate on China's terms, taking every bit of the Chinese propaganda as some kind of a... Uh, you know, mystical thing that has to be analyzed and explained. So in that sense, you realize, forget the common sense uh, that all great powers uh, try and present their own interests as universal interests or regional interests. And China is doing just the same. So uh, for Japan that is at the receiving end of Chinese military power or in India that is at the finds its territory under threat from Chinese aggression, uh, they, they don't believe this. Uh, just as going back to the 1930s, the Chinese did not believe in the Japanese claim that uh, they were going to build Asia for Asians. They're going to liberate Asia from the Western imperialists. So we've seen this game before. Uh, So I don't think uh, anybody's fooled by that.
1: They're not fooled by it, but they have to cope with it. China is a rising power, the rising power. India is also a rising power. I said at the top that it seems from a great distance, almost inevitable that the headbutting that has characterized the relationship between China and India over the years is likely to intensify, especially given the approach the Chinese are taking. They clearly intend to dominate Asia. Indeed, I think they intend to dominate the globe. Besides behaving with their eyes wide open, what should India's leaders be doing to anticipate uh, that Chinese aggression, which certainly seems inevitable, at least from a great distance?
2: I will slightly modify your proposition that China and India are rising powers. In fact, China has risen already. India is rising. And for quite some time to come, the gap between the comprehensive national power of China and India will be in favor of uh, China. Uh, That's a reality today. For example, Chinese GDP is almost uh, five times larger than India's. Its military spending is four times larger than India's. So I think the gap is real. And as China turns... uh, to As China tries to turn this gap into territorial advantage, India has only one option, which is to get closer to the United States and Japan to find ways to limit China's expansionism uh, in Asia. But that's exactly what we've done. Uh, in fact, uh, over the last three years, uh, since the uh, Chinese uh, aggressiveness on the border, India's engagement with the U.S. has steadily grown. Uh, India's military cooperation, security cooperation with the US and its allies has significantly increased. So, we're doing the right thing, Uh, perhaps the only thing, which is we need the West, we need the US uh, to be able to balance uh, the Chinese. So, earlier, uh, we were romantic about uh, China, about romantic about building a partnership with China to build a post Western order in Asia. But today, Uh, That unless we bring in the Americans, unless we have a Western role in Asia, uh, we are not going to have a stable balance of power system. Therefore, we need an open-ended, fully, uh, you know, in which the U.S. and the West fully participate in is critical uh, to make sure that there's a reasonable balance of power in Asia. And there's some constraints on Chinese unilateralism in how it deals with uh, with its neighbors. Let me push you on that because the question
1: of the American so-called pivot to Asia has been hanging out there like a dangling participle for a number of years now, um, declared but not executed in any real substantial way. Uh, Clearly, the war in Ukraine has, to some extent, caused a reversal, troops moving back into Europe, massive spending uh, aimed at European defense, uh, the expansion of NATO, etc., with some little bits and pieces of um, conversations, even not alliances, but, but new relationships on the security side in Asia. Uh, but surely it's it's easy to look at where we are now and and wonder if the Americans, never mind the Europeans, would be on, would be a substantial support for India if China if Chinese aggression took more concrete forms on your borders?
2: Uh, There are two two issues here. One, uh, I would say the U.S. has not taken its eyes off Asia because of the Ukraine crisis, or of the perennial problems in the Middle East. uh, Over a period of time, I mean, the, the U.S. has talked about the pivot, but might not have moved the forces in a big way. But its levels of engagement with Asia have been very high. And the Quad uh, under the Biden administration has been elevated to the summit level. And we see a lot of uh, U.S. involvement uh, in the in the region. Second, unlike in Europe, where the U.S. has to lift the much of the weight, you know, the Europeans uh, don't pay for their own defense. Uh, they like the welfare state, uh, while the Americans have to keep paying for it. In Asia, at least Japan and India, they, they're signaling they're going to do their share. They're going to do more than that so it's not that india is not a treaty partner it's not expecting american soldiers to come into the himalayas and join them to fight the fight the chinese india can do it itself so i think the a us that helps india to balance china the us that helps japan to secure the technological capabilities to balance china we will do the rest that's where we are different from the europeans we feel this threat intensely And uh, we're going to do it for our own interests. And the U.S. role from being the force that does everything to one, a force that facilitates the construction of a regional balance of power uh, would be much easier than U.S. bringing its troops all over Asia uh, trying to stand up against the Chinese. So in that strategy, uh, India has a huge role. And uh, India is ready to play that role. And we've seen in the in the last crisis, uh, the US did give us some assistance on intelligence, uh, on uh, you know giving us uh, data on what was happening on the Chinese side. So that is very useful. So India is looking not looking for, as the Europeans do, American troops to come in, stand in the Central European uh, frontier with Russia. So this is a different situation. And my sense is, uh, at this point, I don't think Delhi has any complaints against Washington uh, that it is not supporting enough or that we expect more from the United States.
0: If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate.
1: So going forward, you could imagine some kind of Delhi-Tokyo access backstop by the United States that would, in in Kissingerian terms, support a stable balance of power in Asia that would keep China uh, at least, if not contained, at least constrained in its aggression.
2: Exactly. Uh, You got it exactly right. This is is about... Uh, You know, the debate on burden sharing in Europe, which never really took off. Uh, Here, you're talking about actually uh, facilitating your friends and partners to develop their capabilities, to be able to stand up against uh, Chinese uh, expansionism. And and I think that's a good strategy because this is not one imposed by the United States that would, uh, you know, go straight into the Chinese propaganda uh, framework. So helping Asia defend itself against China. Uh, has a much better chance of working than one where the U.S. says, I'm going to defend Asia against China. So so my sense is we are on the right track uh, to be able to produce that local coalitions uh, to deal with the Chinese power.
1: Uh, Sort of a sidebar, I'm curious. Do you think the Chinese are serious about doing something
2: vis-a-vis Taiwan in the short run? No, I... I said, I said they—they are rattling the cage. They're making a lot of noise, but uh, if you're sitting in high in the Chinese uh, political headquarters, uh, you're going to see the famous Russian army has not done too well uh, in on inland where they're supposed to be dominant. Right next door in Ukraine, which is a country that was part of them, the idea that uh, Chinese troops, Chinese forces, can simply cross the channel and take over Taiwan. Uh, i think the us has enough capability to deter that and the us is strengthening those capabilities so my sense is uh, xi jinping can't afford a draw if he takes a risk of attacking taiwan because un- anything short of total victory would be a defeat for him uh, while japan us australia a whole lot of asian you know uh, forces are enough to take at least an arm of uh, Chinese uh, aggression. So I think my sense is the Chinese would be cautious; uh, they would raise the heat, but I doubt if they will actually go in uh, to 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 take over Taiwan. At least anytime soon. And I would just want to add one more thing here, which is the Chinese have had no experience in fighting modern modern wars. So they might have the world's the second largest defense spending uh, and a powerful, uh, you know military modernization that has taken place, but they remain very untested uh, to, to be able to really embark on something like this and to pull, a big, uh, and to pull it off. So my sense is uh, caution would eventually prevail in, uh, in Beijing.
1: This is an important point because, like in all things, practice matters. And you are right. The last time the Chinese fought a big war uh, is now well in the past. Um, and it was a very different kind of war than than what they are now building the capability for. You don't just create a Navy overnight and suddenly it's effective or an Air Force overnight and suddenly it's effective. It's, it's a terribly important point. Let, let me segue to something we already mentioned, uh, the rules-based order. There's an enormous amount of talk about it, uh, particularly in Europe and the United States, uh, which, of course, to us means our rules and our order. Um, the Chinese have been rude recently in pointing out that they agree with the notion of a rules-based order, just don't think it should be written by 12% of the world's population for the other 88% of the population. That, of course, is self-serving, but of course it's self-serving. How do we evolve a new rules-based order that, in fact, is relevant in Delhi and in Beijing, as well as in Washington and Berlin?
2: once again, I think the Chinese propaganda is uh, is clever, but it is uh, it, it doesn't stand close scrutiny. I mean, uh, Chinese benefited from the U.S. rules until now. Uh, U.S. probably is regretting getting the Chinese into the World Trade Organization today, uh, but the fact is they've been immense beneficiaries of the global global system. Uh, but unlike Deng Xiaoping and his immediate successors, uh, Xi Jinping thinks he can build his own world order and uh, wants to reshape the regional uh, balances, uh, gain more control over the region and on, on and on the international system. So it is not uh, saying look whose rules, uh, but sitting in India at least. There's one rule all of us have always agreed on, which is you don't take your neighbor's territory by force. Uh, And I think there, respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity of other states and that any change in borders must come by peaceful means. Now, that is fundamental to the UN Charter. And here, both Russia and China are fundamentally trying to overturn the principle. If Washington was smart, it would have presented the Ukraine crisis not as a Confrontation between autocracies and democracies, but as violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of another member of the United Nations, uh, I think that would have gotten you a lot more support because that's easy to understand. Uh, Europeans might think they're in a post-sovereign uh, world, they're into this great world of norms, uh, but as Russians reminded them, they're not in such a world, uh, and. Uh, that for us, we are conscious of our sovereignty, we are conscious of our territorial integrity, no nation in the, in the developing world under under underestimates the importance of these concepts. So framing it, look, you simply can't walk, send in your troops to take over another country on the basis of the claim that the other nation has no right to exist, which is what Russia has done in Ukraine. In the east here, China uh, has sliced off territory in the South China Sea, uh, and it has violated every single you know, norm there are rules, which are simple rules, which is the world court has said uh, China was wrong on every count of its claim in the South China Sea. But Chinese have simply altered the facts on the ground. They've altered, uh, they've violated the commitments on Hong Kong. Now they want to simply take over uh, Taiwan and they want to take over parts of Indian uh, Ladakh. So here there's no room for confusion. But I think the the problem is the obfuscation, the mystification of the debate on rules based order in the Western debates, and the Chinese counter to it. Uh, I think don't take away from the simple principle that uh, territorial sovereignty is important, and if they have to be, the borders have to be changed. They have to be done by negotiation. After all, China has agreed on these principles with us for the last thirty years, and violated them today because China thinks. It can get away with it. And I think our job is to tell them, to show them that they can't get away with it.
1: I think that's well put because part of the problem in, and I suspect the reason the United States did not make the case as you suggested it should have, is that we too violate that principle all the time when it is convenient, whether it's Grenada or Panama or Iraq. The list goes on and we find our own justification usually on high moral grounds for, for doing so. Uh, so to make the case, even American diplomats have a little trouble making a case that they know will they have violated and will violate again in the future. And, and I think that is part of the problem of global governance at the moment, uh, which is to say there are at least two sets of rules, those for the great powers and those for everybody else. And, and, it, it, and that is the flaw in the argument, I'm afraid.
2: I would just add one caveat to that. Uh you know, you're right that, look, major powers, uh, you know, make their own rules. But the fact is that the U.S. has used force. It has violated sovereignty of other countries. But it is not said it wants to absorb Afghanistan into the United States. I know it will be too expensive. Or you, why would you want to do it? Or said Iraq is going to be part of the United States. So I think that is a fundamental difference between the U.S. military interventions Uh, And the Russian occupation of Ukraine today claiming that Ukraine belongs to them or the Chinese claims that the territory around them belongs to them. I think that is the difference between the U.S. military interventions of the last 200 years and the Chinese and the Russian uh, territorial aggression and expansionism today.
1: It's an excellent point. I agree entirely with you. Borders matter uh, and peace and stability require the agreement that borders matter, uh, which, which raises in the, my final question. You have argued that India needs new foreign policy. Why, I understand. The world and India are changing rapidly. What do you see as the key elements of a new approach? You've talked about some of it. I can imagine reshaping, creating alliance, maybe too strong a word, but but, but new relationships uh, with countries like Japan, maybe Korea, um, obviously a shift in focus uh, from excess dependence on Russia to something else. But are, what what are the basic principles you would imagine India's future foreign policy entail?
2: No, I would uh, identify. I mean, three changes that are already occurring. I mean, I think uh, one is in the in terms of the great power relationships. Uh, India's, you know, in the past. India defined itself in opposition to the West, whether it is through the non-aligned movement, on a range of issues that India seemed to present itself, both as in the East-West issues as well as the North-South issues. Uh, India was a champion of the Global South, and it was tilted to the East uh, in the East-West confrontation. But today, India's uh, relationship with the West has dramatically grown in the last two decades. And in the last three years, it has actually intensified. Today, I think for the first time, the... The convergence of interests between India and the West are real, and the governments in Delhi are today far more conscious of that, and they see the value of an India that has stronger partnership uh, with the with the with the West and the economic orientation of india the post reform orientation of India has seen greater economic engagement uh, with the West uh, rather than with Russia uh, or for that matter uh, with uh, with China. Second, I think uh, there is no contradiction between the Western interests in Asia which was India's neighborhood, and India's own interests. Both of us have a common interest uh, in constructing a stable balance of our system here. Uh, this was not the case in the Cold War where the U.S. supported China and we ended up in partnership with the Russians. So we are in a new situation uh, within the within the regional uh, dynamic. Third, I think, on the international level, here again, uh, the idea of like-minded coalitions, that India and the U.S. working together, looking not to transcend the UN, but to be able to build new coalitions. Uh, Unlike in the last 30 years, where we believe that global institutions will produce answers today, it is the coalitions between like-minded countries, uh, coalitions like the Quad, uh, coalitions like uh, the uh, other uh, areas where we are beginning to work together. uh, I I would say uh, those are... Uh, beginning to happen, so so I would say uh, the, the greater collaboration with the West, greater convergence of interests with the West in the region, and a new global governance where India works with the Western countries to develop like-minded coalitions. Uh, all these are the new new elements of India's foreign policy that, that are already uh, visible. If the
1: United States was wise enough to redo the G seven, should
2: India be one of the seven? I would say there have been talk about a G, G10. Uh, the proposal was there. Uh, British certainly tried to push it uh, of uh, India, Australia, and South Korea being part of the uh, G7. And in fact, they're being continuously invited. Uh, so my sense is the core idea is already there that you need to expand the coalition to bring in Asian uh, powers into it beyond Japan. And and my 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 sense is it's is bound to happen one way or another. Whether you do it formally today, tomorrow. Uh, that that you need uh, India, South Korea, Australia, and other Asian countries to be able to uh, join this coalition uh, to build a more stable and prosperous world. Uh, my proposal would
1: be to disinvite some of the small European com- countries and replace them with countries that actually will shape the future. And I think just listening and chatting for the last half hour, clearly India is one of the countries that will shape the next decades. Thank you, Raja, for the conversation. Um, I'm a fan. I enjoy your writing. Keep on doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T A L L B E R G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarkos Foundation.